At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hello and welcome to the Modern Adventurer podcast, where explorers and adventurers tell their stories. Coming up. The saving grace for me at that point was the fact that I'd, in the nine years in the build-up to my injury, I'd, I'd gone through tests and challenges and I'd failed and overcome failure and learnt from failure, that when I had my accident, I had almost this kind of like bank of resilience that I could start tapping into, and trust me, I needed to tap into it. I think had I not gone through those life experiences in the build-up to my accident and tested myself and pushed my limits and you know pushed myself out of my comfort zone and grown as an individual, that whole growth mindset kind of stuff, if I'd then gone through what I'd gone through and, and had to overcome a new type of adversity and life's biggest challenge, and this is a challenge that you know, climbing a mountain or going through, you know, selection with a special forces reserve, you could quit at any point. You could turn back around the mountain or you could just say, you know what, I'm voluntary withdrawing, I, I don't want this enough kind of thing. Whereas with this challenge, with a life-changing injury, there's no get out clause, there's no give up clause. You just have to attack it and you have to keep moving forward. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review if you've enjoyed the show so far. A massive thank you to those who have already reviewed it. And a massive thank you to you who have listened to this podcast week after week for the last year or so. It has been an absolutely fascinating experience listening to these incredible adventurers and inspiring explorers. I just want to say thank you and wish you a very happy Christmas. I'm John Horsfall, and on this weekly podcast, I talk to adventurers and explorers from around the world who have made remarkable and daring journeys in recent years. From Everest climbers to polar explorers, world record holders, and many more. I hope this podcast sparks ideas and inspires you to explore and go on an adventure of your own. But what is left for the adventurers and explorers in the 21st century? Well, let's find out. My next guest is a disabled adventurer and motivational speaker. Five years ago, his life sort of changed forever. Whilst rock climbing in North Wales, he was involved in a serious fall that would leave him with this life-changing injury. And from that, he sort of started a new journey and a new chapter in his life. His accident followed the most arduous five months of this sort of new journey from intensive care to surgery and rehabilitation. What is so fascinating about his story is that he sort of refused to let the word disability define him. And he's committed to helping challenge the perception of what those who with disabilities can achieve. He speaks on the podcast so brilliantly today. And I was just delighted to sort of almost sit back 
and just listen to him speak for an hour. So I'm not going to say too much more. I'm just going to jump straight into it and say I am just so delighted to have Darren Edwards on the podcast today. Cool. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me, John. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I think you've got an incredible story sort of to tell on the podcast today and one that I sort of feel it's best just to sort of jump straight into it and just start right at the beginning about how this sort of love of adventure sort of came about and what are you doing? Because I know that you were you were training to become like this sort of army reserve training for the SES, having these huge plans and then something dramatic happened that sort of changed the course of your life. Yeah. Yeah. I guess for me, I almost feel like there's two kind of like clear chapters to my life. There's kind of uh, a crux where things really change and life changes quite dramatically pretty damn quickly. And the sort of the person that I am is still the same. I'm still someone said to me that a life changing injury kind of strips away your sense of identity and who you are as a person. And recording in progress at the time, I kind of worried that that was true. I was worried that I was about to lose who I was as a person. Um, but I was always adamant that I wouldn't change. And at, at my heart, I would always be the same version of me, perhaps in a different way. So, you know, growing up, I felt like a little bit of a misfit. I was in a friendship group, which was interested in football and drinking and girls. And, and while I liked football and girls, I was never much of a drinker. And it wasn't until I was 17 that I met someone who became my best friend who, you know, came from an adventurous kind of lifestyle and, and was someone that climbed and, and, you know, wanted to be a mountaineer and was kind of moving in that direction in his life. And he really pulled me in that direction as well. He got, kind of gave me a taste of, of what it was like to, to live more adventurously and to not kind of live for um, the pub and, and the football pitch and for the girls um, whilst, you know, the, 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 the latter still remains an interest, obviously. And, you know, all of a sudden we're, we live up in Shrewsbury in the West Midlands. We're about an hour and a half from, from Snowdonia. So my first kind of indoctrination into this world was going up Cribgock, Snowdon, and just having this real revelation of this is kind of the, the sort of person, the sort of lifestyle I want to lead and, and the thing that I want to make me, me as a person. So for what would have been nine years, I kind of developed my skill set and my interest and my love for, for climbing and for mountaineering. You know, moving from just kind of hiking at the start through to traditional rock climbing, sport climbing, climbing in the Alps. You know, um, had the absolute honour and privilege of climbing Mont Blanc in 2014 and going back to climb Monte Rosa, which is the second highest in 2015. And life was moving in one direction and one one clear, well, there were two clear goals of mine. The first of mine was to, to climb in the Himalayas and I was, you know, I, probably apologize for the mispronunciation of this but making plans to to go to climb Choyo in 2000 and what would have been 17 and like you alluded to I was you know part of the army reserve and I was going through the selection and training person um, process for the for the SES reserve and I was two years into that I'd gone through the select the physical selection process which is known as hills which is just physical torture over the mountains of South Wales and the Brecon Beacons just pushing yourself beyond what you think your limits are and pushing yourself complete, so far out of your comfort zone, you wouldn't know how to find it if uh, someone turned around and, and said to go back to it. And th that was it. My purpose in life, my drive in life and my, my passion were to achieve these two goals that kind of had the same 
um, elements to them. They were they were both extremely challenging and extremely rewarding. And then life changed pretty dramatically in an unexpected way when I was uh, rock climbing in, in North Wales, so probably about an hour from me in a, in a place called Langothlan, um, in an old limestone quarry. So really um, sketchy would probably be the best word to describe it. It's a real loose rock. And the, the slight irony of, of where I had my accident is the crag itself is called World's End. Um, little did I know that that day it potentially would kind of um, represent the end of my particular world at the moment. So it was the 6th of August 2016. I was climbing with the person that introduced me to to this world nine years earlier to Matt, with Matt, sorry. And we're kind of at the, the final pitch of what is a 120-foot rock face. And I make the final, um, you know, ascent and I'm putting my gear in as I go. And I'm stood, you know, at the, the top of this 30-foot section and I've made it. Uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, done uh matt's going to come up to me and we're going to walk off and go home uh the final sort of pitch was was a little bit tricky and and matt was struggling to get up it and we were conscious that he was going on a a, on a date that night with a a first date with a girl from tinder and she kind of like ticked all his boxes so he was super keen he was like right come on we gotta go we gotta go so i think he was getting a little bit frustrated he couldn't couldn't make it up to me so the quickest thing in our heads was for me to quickly rig up an abseil and go back down to him um, walk off this kind of like middle ledge together and back to the car which is parked down the bottom and it was kind of when we were doing that I was going through the motions of setting up my my anchor point and, and abseiling back down to him that as I looked down and it's the sort of thing that you probably do hundreds of thousands of times before anybody listening that's you know a, a climber or a mountaineer you stand on the edge and you confident and comfortable standing there but it was as I was kind of peering over my shoulder and saying something back down to Matt that was more than likely about the date that night and I'm pretty sure it was uh, I think the word catfish might have been used I was like it's going to be a catfish and it was the last thing that I'd say to Matt and before I know it the ledge that I was on shifted below my feet and I froze I completely froze and within seconds you know probably a, a millisecond my rope started to zip through my from through my belay device my upside device and I just it was like you know being on a roller coaster ride at a theme park where you get that initial drop and you kind of get that pit of the stomach feeling but it just kept going and before I know it you know I, I'm falling straight back down what could have been a, a hundred foot drop um but fortunately for me, you know, what probably lasted three or four seconds felt like a, an eternity. And in that moment, I knew I had such kind of like crystal awareness of everything that I stood to lose. Um, and the kind of the the nature of the first time in my life, I was completely out of control of what was about to happen to me. And that was genuinely really scary because I didn't know what was what was going to happen in the next couple of seconds. I land flat on my back um, on the ledge that Matt has stood on, which is probably no more than six foot wide, and I start to tumble. So I've landed on my back. At that point, I've broken my back. I don't know it at the time. I know that I'm in pain. I start to tumble. I tumble through um, like a thorn bush. So I've got a scar that runs probably from my wrist all the way up to up to my shoulder. So that was kind of insult to injury at that point. Um, and I don't know it, but as I'm tumbling and I'm about to tumble off this next next sort of 40 foot section, Matt has seen seen me land, has sprinted over to me, and has rugby tackled me, and he's rugby tackled me on the edge of this next ledge. So without a doubt, at that point, he's he saved my life and, and stopped me from falling any further. 
And yeah, it's kind of those initial seconds of um, confusion and panic and kind of trying to come to, come to terms on understanding of what's just happened. And probably on that ledge for about an hour before the mountain rescue team turn up and the situation starts to be assessed, Matt's kind of got me stable. And it was in the, the that timeline before mountain rescue turned up that I tried to stand up for the first time. And it felt like the whole world had kind of like pivoted in the middle of my back. The, the, the top half of my body, the top half from my chest up had moved as if it was to stand up. And it was in that moment that I had this real dawning realization that I couldn't feel my legs and that my brain simply didn't know that three quarters of my body existed. And I think in that moment, I realized that I was seriously injured. Um, until that point, the pain that I was feeling was from my arm, from ripping my arm as I fell. So my main concern was the fact that I'd, I'd, I'd broken my arm or that I'd, I'd seriously injured my arm. I, I didn't really think about the fact that I might have injured my, my spine or I had a spinal injury. And we put that initial 30, 45 minute period down to shock and kind of it would wear off and I'd stand up and, and we'd think no more of it. And yeah, probably two two hours elapsed by the time the, the Coast Guard helicopter's there. So obviously we can't use a normal air ambulance just because of the exposure of the cliff. And that kind of starts a five month journey for me through intensive care, being told the next day by surgeons and, and, and the guy that operated on me when I arrived at the major trauma unit as to what I'd done, yeah, as to kind of the level of my injury and, and the severity of my injury and the very no no shit talking assessment of of my sort of prognosis was that the level of damage I'd, I'd broken my back at t6 which is kind of where your breastbone meets in the middle and i'd not just really broken my back i'd i'd without being too graphic i'd snapped my back clean in two as i landed i'd landed on a on a piece of metal um hex one of my one of my climbing nuts so the the force of the impact had been you know times by 10 at that point and I yeah completely dislodged my spine. Um, my spinal cord was severely injured, and that's kind of the that's the thing, you know. There's there's breaking your back and and not affecting your spinal cord. Some people can, and I've met people in hospital that came in paralysed from the neck down, and over the course of six to twelve weeks, they they rediscover the ability to walk because the swelling on their spinal cord reduces. But for me, it was such a cold-hearted prognosis of we're sorry, but this this is it. You know, we'll, we'll know more, but um, this is this is this is you for the time being. The sort of rehabilitation of it. I mean, your partner that you were climbing with, because did did you fall? You fell next to him. I so I thought you might have fallen on him. Did you fall on him? Um, no. So I fell probably I think a couple of feet, six foot to the left of him. Okay. And and then he grabbed you just before you could fall off again. So I kind of, I, I gave him the, and that's something that I've always remembered is as I was falling, I had enough time to, to shout his name, I think four times, because I was, I, was, I was physically letting him know what was happening because he would have had no idea. You know, as far as he was concerned, I, I'd set up myself to, to come back down to him, take my gear out as I, as I was going. And that was it so he was had he still been clipped into the rock at that point which he was he would have seen me land and 
unless he'd unclipped quick enough, he he never would have made it to me because we're, we're talking seconds between me landing and me going off that next ledge. And the, I suppose for people listening, it's the the mental strain of coming to terms with your situation. How was it in in a sense of having all these goals and aspirations to suddenly being told by the doctor, no more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really it was really tough. Um, I'll being being honest. I think that first week in intensive care was was such a blur. You know, it was kind of like hooked up to a machine where if I was in pain, I could hit this red button and I'd get a hit of morphine. So that first week and coming off the back of what was a, I think like a nine hour surgery was, was, was really taxing, you know, on me physically and emotionally. And I really struggled in intensive care being in an environment where you feel so claustrophobic, surrounded by beeping machines, surrounded by people that were going through horrific injury, people screaming, and all of a sudden, I, you know, there were no windows. It was it was only aircon. My body was overheating from from trying to recover from surgery. And it wasn't until I think that like day four where the the staff and I think my my mum in particular noticed that I was really beginning to struggle emotionally. That they wheeled me out of intensive care into like the ambulance bay that was just like down the corridor, just to get fresh air and sunlight and just to breathe for the first time since my accident and just to kind of like get a few deep breaths in and kind of reaffirm to myself that I can handle this. And that was one of the the key promises I made myself on the day of my accident when when we waited for the for the Coast Guard helicopter to turn up, which was my kind of rescue, uh, was that I promised whatever this was, because I didn't know at that point, whatever this is, I won't let it beat me. And I really almost gave up on that by day four of intensive care because I was finding it so hard. And being wheeled out into that ambulance bay was that kind of moment where I could reaffirm to myself that commitment and just say, you know what, you do have this. I just needed that that kind of moment of fresh air, sunlight on my skin, just to really take stock and, and say to myself, you do have this. You know, you weren't naive to, to promise it. But it was really tough to be told that I'd have to give up on two key dreams and a way of living that I'd built over a nine year kind of love affair with with being outdoors and adventurous was tough but at the same time I just knew that I'd find a new way of living that life it wasn't that I was going to change as a person it's just that the the mode of transport might change was the only thing that I, I thought in my head we I I have a friend who had similar not similar um a friend of was sort of blown up and I suppose at the start when you come to terms with the situation you sort of set yourself goals and you sort of use that as your focus and your drive each day did you sort of have that was the idea of like when you're in hospital you're like right I'm going to attempt to try and do this or attempt to do that and then that's your focus and then your goal and each day is to try and progress progress to this level whether it's so minor you know like a sort of I, I don't know being able to feel your toe or you know being able to take one step those sort of goals are in your sort of head to sort of push you forward was that 
a similar thing that happened to you when you were in hospital? Yeah, for sure. So they they said that the first six weeks could could you know things could come back and and you might rediscover some feeling. So I was kind of really hypersensitive to if I, if I woke up, could I feel anything? Could I try and wiggle my toes? And then I kind of thought, well, you know what? Let's focus on what I can control. So I'm pretty sure I was the one of the first people to ask for some weights. I was on, so you, you kind of go into bed rest. So you're on like a six week bed rest program. And when I say bed rest, I mean, you are in in bed, flat on your back and you're giving yourself a six week kind of period to, to heal. And I found that so frustrating because whilst there was like TV there, there was all the kind of like, you know, gadgets to keep you occupied. Physically, it was so hard just to sit or to lay still. So I kind of, one day I said to the physio, I was like, do you reckon um, I can get some weights? And she was like, Darren, I'm, I, you probably misinterpreted the idea of bed rest here, but the idea of bed rest is that you rest. And I was like, yeah, but I'm really, uh, I need to do something. I'm like, I'm wasting away. And I was wasting away. I was, you know, I was in the physical shape of my life and was watching my body kind of like evaporate rapidly. And um, so she, she kind of said, well, I'll see what I can do. And she came back in one day with a pink one kilo dumbbell or two of them to be precise and was like, this is the best we can do. And I uh, kind of like very gratefully took them. I was like, okay, perfect. So when she left, I started trying to do like chest press and like, you know, some curls, whatever I could do from from my like laying down position. And the next day I was like, Amy, I'm, I'm so sorry, but is it anything heavier, anything heavier than one kilo? And she kind of said that she was bending the rules, but she gave me a two kilo dumbbell and the same thing. You could, so light, you could chuck this thing across the room without much trying. So one of my friends uh, works at a gym in the town near me. And I said to him, I was like, mate, I'm I'm dying here. Come on, I need something. So he kind of goes away and gets me a four kilo dumbbell from his gym. And to this day, the, there's a still a four kilo. This is five years later. There's still a four kilo dumbbell that's left to kind of like spare. There's one missing and I've got it. And uh, yeah, so I kind of started to try and do what I could physically to rehabilitate myself. There was a device that when I, I wish I could have it, there was a device when I first got to hospital, which was you, it was to measure lung function. So as I'd landed, I'd broken three ribs on my back and I'd punctured my lung. So my breathing was really labored and my breathing was pretty weak. So there's a little chambered thing. It's three balls in different chambers and you have to inhale and a healthy person without trying, me or you now could inhale and all three would lift. And that would be kind of like a piece of, piece of cake, really. I was so weak, you know, from a cardiovascular point of view when I got in that I could just about wobble this first ball. And I was trying with all my kind of like, you know, strength to, to do it. And uh, I couldn't. So every day I was like, you know, a bit like a blooming drug addict. I was like either doing these weights or... I'll say this very carefully, sucking this pipe to try and like lift these balls. And day by day, that first ball got higher up the chamber until it reached the top. You know, a couple of days later, I'd be wobbling the second ball, first ball a bit top, wobbling the second ball. And it was these little wins and these little kind of like goals, like you say, that kept me in a positive state of mind because I was seeing progress, even though I was still laying in bed. And I was counting down the days of, you know, however many days left until I could get up for the first day. 
Um, it was a long, a long six weeks of of lying flat and trying to to find those little goals just to keep my mindset ticking along. I think that's probably really important because it's very. I think you can almost go one of two ways. You could almost give up and say, you know, my life's over, or you could set yourself goals and try and go out and pursue them. And I imagine for people who have these sort of life-changing injuries, you go of one of two ways. But I always was told that it's like after three months, once it's all, the goals have sort of been set and done and you sort of have to move back into normal society or normal life, that's where it becomes the most challenging. Yeah, so there's an expression that they say in hospital so you're on the spinal ward for for five months you know all in all um they say that you're going from the zoo to the jungle so the hospital is the zoo because you're fed you're watered you're looked after you're medicated if anything goes wrong don't worry you know you, you kind of you, you, you're taken care of then you're discharged into the jungle because you're you're having to fend for yourself to a large extent you have to fend for yourself you're going back into a world that you're looking at it from a different perspective. You, you've never seen the world like you do before. You know, I'm used to walking around six foot, see a mountain, run up it, see a cliff, climb it. And you go out at four foot three, sat down, and all of a sudden, going off a curb, which is six inches, or going up a curb, which is six inches, become like your, your, your new little mini Everest that you kind of, day by day, you're like, right, well, if I'm going to fall, and, and trust me, I have fallen out and embarrassed myself in public so many times by like you know just trying to do something a bit stupid but all, all very mundane and, and falling out my chair and and yeah so that was scary and, and I've gone through you know my long-term relationship and broke up in hospital and all of these little things were like challenging my resilience and challenging my ability to stay resilient and it was I think you know having the saving grace for me at that point was the fact that I'd in the nine years in the build up to my injury, I'd, I'd gone through tests and challenges and I'd failed and overcome failure and learned from failure that when I had my accident, I had almost this kind of like bank of resilience that I could start tapping into. And trust me, I needed to tap into it. I think had I not gone through those life experiences in the build up to my accident and tested myself and pushed my limits and, you know, push myself out of my comfort zone and grown as an individual, that whole growth mindset kind of stuff. If I'd then gone through what I'd gone through and, and had to overcome a new type of adversity and life's biggest challenge, and this is a challenge that, you know, climbing a mountain or going through, you know, selection with a special forces reserve, you could quit at any point. You could turn back around the mountain or you could just say, you know what, I'm voluntary withdrawing. I, I don't want this enough kind of thing. Whereas with this challenge, with a life-changing injury, there's no get-out clause. There's no give-up clause. You just have to attack it and you have to keep moving forward. So leaving hospital was, was scary. It was scary, really scary, because I didn't quite know what my life was going to look like. But there was one really important thing I did in hospital that I think got a lot of eye, roll, eye rolls at the time was I had like a day off, like a, a bit like a prisoner. I had like day release for, for one day. And me, Matt, and another of our friends, Harry, went up to Manchester, which is about an hour, and we went to a kayak shop. And in my head, I was like, kayaking is the way that I'm going to live the same lifestyle 
and a way for me to not feel like I'm disabled or not feel like I've got a life-changing injury. So we went up, spent, I think, 800 quid on a kayak and 200 quid more and all the bits to go with it. You know, I'd saved a bit of money being in hospital, obviously, and came back the next day triumphant. To, well, came back the same day and I saw my physio the next day um, and I just asked her the simple question. I was like, do you think I could kayak? And she was like, what? And I was like, in your opinion, can someone of my injury level, you know, someone who's chest down paralyzed, could they kayak? And she was like, Darren, I love your enthusiasm, but if I'm honest, I think you kind of need to limit your, your kind of, you know, wheelchair basketball, wheelchair tennis, something with a bit more support. And in my head, anything that had the word wheelchair in it, I wasn't interested in because I don't want to, you know, my wheelchair is my mode of transport and that's it. I don't want to prolong being in it the sports that take my interest now are sports where you leave your chair at the side and you get in and you row or you kayak or you swim or whatever that sense of freedom so she was like why are you asking I said um and I just got my phone out and showed her the picture of me sat next to my kayak and she went when was this and I was like it was yesterday and that's mine I just bought it and she was like Darren, you know, that, that typical, like disapproving kind of the physio that wanted to take care of you, make sure you didn't kill yourself. Um, but that was the single most important thing that I did in my injury, post-injury, because it was that statement to myself. And that once again, reaffirming that commitment I made on, on the cliff that day that I wouldn't be beaten. So on the 23rd of December, I'm discharged on the 24th of December, I'm in the local swimming pool for two hours and we've got our kayaks in the water and I, probably capsized I don't know a hundred times in the space of two hours because it turns out it is pretty difficult when you're kind of my injury level but I wasn't deterred with every capsize with every failure if you want to call it failure I was more um, stubbornly determined to overcome the challenge. <laughs> did, um, did you have to sort of uh, what's the word adapt the kayak because being sort of chest down in terms of your glutes and your waist being sort of supportive did you have to sort of adjust it so it's more attached to around your waist in a sense yeah you've got it so we, we had to do it so it was a bit more padded so it was a bit more connection to the boat uh, I had like a, a backrest but the same as the one that you know my, my friends had it was there any difference to them and that was the appeal I think in my mind is once we were on the water apart from the fact you could tell that one person looked a lot more tense than the rest. And that person was me because I was trying not to fall in and like you use a lot of your neck muscles. So for me, with it being chest up, there's a lot of emphasis on neck muscles, on shoulder muscles to do the stability for you. So in a lot of the pictures from that day, you could just see the kind of like tension on my face. And, um, but yeah, we know we didn't, we didn't really do anything to it. So once we were off and we were paddling, you know, in the days that followed and the weeks that followed, it moved from a swimming pool to a, the local canal and we'd leave my chair at the side, we'd jump in and we'd go down for a couple of miles and come back. And then, you know, a couple more weeks or months go past and we're up on one of the lakes in, in, in Wales near us in Snowdonia. And it was a real like sweet moment where I was looking back at, at kind of, you know, the journey I'd been on and, and thinking, well, I don't really know what's changed here. I've I've lost something, but I've gained something. And I'm not focusing on that. You could drive yourself crazy. You could completely torture yourself. And I could have tortured myself thinking about everything that I'd lost. Um, but 
I, I just my brain's not wired that way and I, and I know that it's not wired that way because that's self-protection that's that's me looking after my mindset and that's me looking after my my kind of positivity so it was much better much more productive and much more exciting to think about where this journey could go and you know for me that's you know something I and I tried a few things I'd never done before I learned to I started rowing um, I tried free diving, which is obviously, you know, scuba diving without the oxygen tank, just take a breath and pull down on a rope. And, you know, before you know it, you're 30 foot under and you're swimming through a, a, a wreckage of a plane. And like, and it, there were some of those moments in that moment, as I was, b- before I started to panic, I didn't have enough oxygen to get back to the surface. It was one of those, well, I never would have done this moments. My life was on a two completely different trajectories, but what's to say that you can't achieve the same thing on this second trajectory? What's to say you can't achieve the same sense of fulfillment, happiness, challenge, excitement? And I was, and it's been a, it's been the greatest adventure of my life has been life. My life has become one big adventure. Oh, that's really well put. And with this sort of kayaking, was this where you got the idea to sort of kayak from John O'Greats to Land's End? No, no, not at all. So the the idea, the idea. So I, six months after coming out of hospital, so a year after my injury, I I went for selection for Britain's Paralympic kayaking team. I kind of just thought, you know what? I've seen the leaflet. I'm going to go for it. I'm probably not what they're looking for. And God knows they didn't see kayaking ability in me because I was, the, the kayaks they use are a lot tippier. So I was upside down once again. This was back to the swimming pool day one type thing. This is in the lake in Nottingham at the National Water Sports Centre. And I'm upside down more times than I'm the right way up. And this poor coach is like dragging me out of the water. But with every capsize, I was like, you know, put me back in. And he was like, well, you've fallen in about four times now. And I'm like, put me back in. So I think what they saw was like this stubborn determination and resilience and this kind of, you know, willingness to overcome adversity. So they invited me back for a few more trials. And before I know it, life has become, you know, I'm, a, I'm an athlete and I'm driving over from Shrewsbury to Nottingham three days a week to the National War Sports Centre. And I'm part of their talent development pathway. So they're looking at the next almost generation of athletes to, to challenge for Paralympic selection for Tokyo and for Paris and for the ones that follow that. And that's what life became. Life became moving towards my new purpose and my new goal, which was kayaking with the ambition of, of qualifying for Tokyo. And it, Kayak for Heroes didn't come about until I failed. You know, I, I'd, I'd, I'd trained for three years for something and before I can really do anything about it, I've, you know, I'm struggling with a shoulder injury, COVID comes in, you know, double impact there, it throws everything, all the uncertainty of, of what's going to happen with the Olympics and the Paralympics. And three years of hard work looks like it might have no end result. And it was in that kind of flux or that, that that state of flux where it was going back to controlling what I could control. And all of a sudden I can't control what's going to happen with the Paralympics or whether or not I'll get a chance to to qualify. And to be honest, whether or not my injury was holding me up enough that I could even be competitive. So in that, I think this would have been June 2020, I called up a couple of mates that I'd, I'd, I'd met through the Armed Forces Paris Snow Sports team. We, we'd, we'd met uh, Nordic skiing in, in Norway in December 2019. So I called them up, you know, three or four months later 
in in the new year and I said do you guys fancy doing something epic do you fancy doing something really really big and the people I called I knew were like-minded and I knew that just saying that would kind of whet the appetite and when we were in Norway we sat around a table one night and we were having dinner and we were chatting about big life goals so uh, Johnny one of the lads on the table said that he wanted to go to Antarctica Luke um, was going to be running the World Marathon Challenge. So he was going to be running seven marathons, seven days, seven continents. And we all went round and it got to me. And I remember saying that for me, kayaking has been the single greatest um, discovery of, of my life post-injury and the single greatest thing that I've really done. And I'd love to do something bigger, big, you know, big expedition, big adventure. I'd love to. And I, th- I sort of threw it out there as a throwaway comment. I was like, I'd love to kayak from Land's End to John O'Groats. There wasn't, wasn't any real rationale or, or logical thinking to why I said it. So when I called the guys up in, in 2020, in, in you know, like I say, about June, and I was like, you fancy making it happen? Shall we, shall we do this? Shall we? It's never been done by, it'd been done by two able-bodied paddlers, experienced sea kayakers. And here is a guy who is, you know, got a serious spinal, high level spinal injury, who has never, re- I'd never kiked on the sea. I, I'd kiked on rivers and lakes and, you know, I was doing the Paralympic stuff, but that's sprint kayaking. That's not, it's not kind of being off the coast and being offshore. And the four guys I was calling up, I knew full well weren't sea kayakers. I, I knew that Luke, um, his claim to you know kayaking experience was twenty minutes on his honeymoon in Cancun, on one of those big sit-on-top kayaks with his wife. And but we all shared the same kind of mindset, that adapt and overcome mindset, and that um, willingness to take on a big challenge and just to figure it out. So before we know it, you know. The, They've all said yes, and we're on our first Zoom call in the middle of lockdown number one, and we're like, right, well, it was well, it was me leading it. It was me, you know, just by the fact it was my idea, I'd become the expedition leader or team captain, and it was just a twelve-month-long problem-solving process of right, well, how do we a acknowledge that we're all complete novice sea kayakers here, and b how do we acknowledge that we've all got life-changing injury? So. Um, ben had been shot seven times in operations. Uh, Lucas stood on an ID in Afghanistan. Johnny had um, just commissioned out of Sandhurst, had a stroke, was paralysed down the left side of his body, and fought to to kind of like rehabilitate his body, but was still left with uh, a neurological impairment. Carl had a spinal injury as well. So there's five non paddlers. You know, probably me had done the most paddling, and five life changing injuries attempting to do something that had never been done by people and never been done by team and never been done by anybody with a injury or disability had been done twice by real high level, you know, people that knew what they were doing. And, you know, that's how Kite for Heroes was formed. That was how the greatest achievement of my life kind of came into being. And when I told people at the local kayaking club down the road from me, you know, quite a lot of experienced whitewater paddlers and sea paddlers, they were saying, well, well, I think initially they were like, A, you're mad, and B, when are you thinking of doing it? And I was like, well, next year. And it was that classic back to physio in hospital, roll of the eyes, and it was like, oh, Darren, um, you know, I wouldn't do this with any less than three years training. And I was like, three years? No, we're doing it next year. And there we go. Just like that, you've you've set your statement and you set your stall out to to do something incredible. I think... What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? 
Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. I think when you decide on doing these, the longer you plan, the longer you train, while it's a good thing, and the more sort of you look at, I don't know, the health and safety, the less likely you are to actually go and do it. Because if you weighed up all the sort of, you know, health and safety aspects or all the sort of problems that could go wrong or all the logistics, eventually you'd just be like, oh, this is too complicated. I can't, we can't do this. Whereas if you go with that sort of slight sense of naivety and just, you know, that enthusiasm that you have, especially, then, then you, you can pretty much go out and things will go wrong they always do but by having that sort of drive and that enthusiasm for it then i always think that's usually one of the best ways of going about it for sure for sure i think the expression that we we use pretty much every day on the expedition was naive enough to start stubborn enough to finish that was like the mantra that's like every every time it got like a little bit shit or a little bit tough we were like lads naive enough to start and like someone else would be like stubborn enough to finish you know when everyone's cold and wet and tired or it's like half four in the morning and that's when we had to start paddling because of the tide times you know you were like cursing yourself but um yeah we didn't know we knew the kind of like the rough numbers so i knew in that first zoom call i was like right lads 1400 kilometers that's the distance that's the rough distance um i reckon it'll take us 35 days i reckon you know, we're going to be paddling on average 50 kilometers a day. I knew the numbers because I'd like sat there and I'd mapped it and I'd, and I'd done, I didn't know anything about tide times or neap tides or spring tides. I was like educating myself. Like, honest to God, I bought, this will make you laugh, but I bought this book, which was like Sea Kayak. It was like, it, you, I actually bought a book called Sea Kayak because I was like, right, I need to know what we're doing. So it was educating myself, educating the team. Um, but yeah, we didn't really know what we were letting ourselves into really. And then we, as part of our like 12 month build up process, we brought on board a guy called Jim Taylor Ross from Epic Kayaks. And he is probably the one of the most experienced sea kayakers in the UK and, and runs Great Britain's ocean paddling team. And it was him that kind of like, he was like, right, Daz, well, let's sit down and look over the map and look over your chosen route. And it was when we were looking over this map and over this route, he was like, right, I just want to point out a few things for you here. And he pointed out about 10 spots along this route. And each spot, the common theme was risk of death, risk of death, risk of death. So you had Mort Point, which in Mort in French means death. So it is quite affectionately known as death point, doom bar, you know, the expression, well, the term, the word doom being the, the key one there. Um, there was one in Scotland called the Gulf of Corriavecan. So people that know it will know it and there's a, a, a whirlpool there which is 10 meters wide and if you get your timings wrong there's a youtube video of an rnli lifeboat being pulled into it and like the rnli lifeboat is struggling to get out because the pull is that strong and he said to me he was like daz if you get this wrong if you get this timing wrong you will be dragged into that sucked down and spat out 10 miles offshore in the irc dead and uh, like it wasn't much of a morale booster, like his 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 chat about these ten places, but it definitely 
gave me a better understanding of the kind of I guess the level of severity of the challenge and and the kind of serious nature of it not that we weren't taking it seriously but like we say in naivety there is a little bit of um um yeah naivety perhaps <laughs> yeah I suppose it's also mitigating the sort of big risks and looking into that I mean you sort of as you say it's good to go with a sense of naivety but when doing especially by sea you definitely want to know exactly where where you can mitigate risk yeah for sure and and we did that so we kind of you know the the plan evolved week by week initially it was going to be right we're doing this no safety boat we're just going to be you know doing it on our own proving and it was that i think there was that stubbornness and that perhaps overcompensation of someone with a injury trying to prove that there's no limits kind of thing but as we brought Jim on and we learned more about what we were actually taking on, the, the kind of the real like seriousness of this challenge, we we made like those mitigations. So we we introduced a safety boat kind of thing, and we and we knew that we'd have a safety boat there um, if anything went wrong. And thank God we did because there were days where things did go wrong, and if we didn't have the safety boat there, geez, it would have been a completely different scenario. And we knew that to mitigate some of the risks of coastal paddling we use the expression that deep you know deep waters are friend and by that we meant that we did the majority of our paddling 5k offshore so we were 5 kilometers you know away from the cliffs 5 kilometers away from tidal races that could really you know screw us over if we got it wrong so whilst all of a sudden you feel like a very small object in a massive sea of blue with waves and swell we were a safe distance away from the towering cliffs that you know the, the Cornish coastline is, is shipwreck coastline for a reason. It's it's got a, a, a history of you know uh, catching people out. So we kind of thought that the safest thing to do, working with Jim to formulate the plan, was to was to stay deep and stay as far away from the cliffs as we could um, without going too far into the Atlantic Ocean, obviously. And on that journey, were you because you've got. Um... Where were you sort of staying? Were you sleeping in B and Bs? Were you wild camping? Uh, so we, were, so we were all prepared. So we were. I was up for camping. I was like, I thought this would be brilliant, it, you know. Um, but on the beach, yeah, yeah. The reality of it was, I think, you know, the the attrition rate of our bodies, and especially like everybody's injuries flared up in different ways. So, so mine pressure sores were actually the biggest thing for me. So if, when you can't feel your your bum and you sat down for long periods salt water sweat rub you know you do really need to keep on top of it because for me i was petrified that within the first week i'd have a pressure sore and that would be me off the expedition um johnny you know the the kind of like knock-on effects of his stroke have have been that when he's cold wet and tired his body starts to shut down neurologically his body shuts down and, and we saw it happen so from an accommodation point of view we made you know, we, we kind of put those like mitigations in place where we actually would treat ourselves. So we we had the, the luxury of Travel Lodge supporting us and we kind of used some of the Travel Lodge accommodation up the country just to get a warm bed, a hot shower. Um, admittedly, we weren't in some of these beds for very long because by the time we'd got off the water, got our kit sorted, planned for the next day, gone through a team briefing, um, you know, by the time like I'd led the briefing and then done the planning for the next day, I might not be getting my head down until 11 and then we might be up at four because we're on the water at five. So it was a lot of quick turnarounds. But yeah, I think having 
having somewhere to have a warm shower and, and get our heads down and you know just to appreciate the fact that we weren't five grizzly paddlers we were five guys trying to push themselves so far out of their comfort zone and achieve something that had never been done before and we were trying to make a statement for what people with disabilities can achieve and and there aren't many people in the event in the adventure community that have got disabilities there's just you know there's not many of us kind of thing so we were doing it we were flying the flag for you know injury and disability adventurers really wow how long did the sort of expedition take so we 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 banked on 35 right and we banked on 50 kilometers a day and then day one we hit 50 and we were like sweet it can be done we can do this and then day two we hit 55 and we were like damn we're getting good at this you know and the process and the machine like the we were getting slicker at our drills in terms of just our timings on and off the water day one within 10 minutes of paddling i capsized and i in my head that that like voice of the inner critic that we all have in the back of our heads was going over time because i was you know I'd, i was feeling the pressure of of leading it i was feeling the pressure of showing that I was a competent, confident paddler and 10 minutes in, I'm upside down and the safety boat is kind of coming in and it's like, right, dad, should we get you out? You know, so we were in double kayaks and I turned it back up and I was like, no, we're getting back in. So like it took three attempts to drag myself back onto the cockpit and to get my legs in. First two occasions, we flopped back out the other side, but I was just so determined to to prove that we could do it. And so for me personally, every day was a struggle, but those first couple of days, with each day, I got more confident and more um, relaxed, which is a huge bit of, of paddling and dealing with the waves. I was trying to fight every wave and to try and fight every bit of swell. So I think as we all went through that process, the first day we were all nervous. People were seasick. If people weren't seasick, the other person was throwing up because you were next to somebody who was seasick. It was a, There was sick and puke and there was other stuff as well. Um and but with each day that went we we ended up clocking up more miles and we were hitting about 60 65 kilometers a day we were extending our paddling window to about eight hours on the water eight hours of physical paddling so i think a week in we were three days ahead of schedule and we were only we said to ourselves that we'd make the decision that we'd only have days off if weather permitted if weather meant that we couldn't physically paddle or we could just see it on ourselves if we needed a day we weren't going to torture ourselves and we could see when everybody was struggling so we did have a couple of days and before we know it it's day 25 and we're at the northeast coast of scotland and we're one day from john o'groats and i mean i know that i've just condensed 26 days of expedition into into about 30 seconds there but we were absolutely like flying as a team and we were learning to not try and fight the weather and fight the wind fight the waves we were learning to run with the waves and there were days where you know your average paddling speed is probably eight kilometers an hour and there were days where we were catching waves and we were surging at like 20 kilometers an hour and there were days where i felt like i was getting thrown out the back of a kayak and my back crest was like fully strained and i was like riding this wave and screaming as we were doing it and just having the time of our lives and there were a couple of days where we hit 100 kilometer days. We were paddling for 11 hours and we were just like, right, this, everything is perfect. Everything is going our way. Let's keep paddling. Let's try and like maximize progress as much as we could. Because there were days where things didn't go well. Uh, there, were, there were a couple of days where things really could have gone wrong. And, you know, we had to make a decision to cut things short. There was one day where an idea of mine was that 
instead of following the coastline round northeast England into the southwest of Scotland, we could straight line it from the coast of the Lake District all the way to north uh, southwest Scotland to a place called Kirkcabright, which is not how you pronounce it as Scottish kind of corrected us when we were there, but I don't want to try and say it properly because I'll, I'll mess it up even more. But what we had was an 80 kilometer crossing across the Irish Sea that could save us three days worth of paddling. So it was one punchy, ambitious day. And I was, I, you know, it was a calculated risk, but in my head I was like, we, we should do this and we can do this. With the safety boat, we can do it. So we're in the middle of the crossing, about 40 kilometers in, and we're in the middle of the Irish Sea. And visibility is okay, not great, but over the course of the day, we're about halfway through the day, halfway there, the visibility is dropping and you can just see it minute by minute coming closer to the point where we're probably down to about 10 meter visibility, sea mist. And all of a sudden we've, we've got no awareness if there's ferries crossing because you've got, it's, it's, it's in the middle of a busy shipping lane and there was a, a decision to be made as to what, whether this was safe anymore. We're using the safety boat as the kind of point of reference. So the safety boat's ahead of the kayak and it's trailing the safety boat. And because we had five paddlers with four paddling seats, we were rotating like who the paddlers were for the days. So myself, I'm on the safety boat at this point and I'm sat next to Chris, who's our, our rib driver, safety boat driver, and Jim's behind me who's a safety advisor, like I said. And we're looking at the screen in front and we're, we're trying to make a decision as to what do we do? You know, if we were to cut and run now, where are we going? Because we're 40K from Belfast, 40K from here, 40K from there. And it was while we were looking at the screen, we'd lost, you know, awareness of what was going on behind us. And it wasn't until I think one of us turned around and we turned around just to see a wall of grey, wall of mist, no boat, no kayak, so I jumped on the radio and I was like, Darren, Luke, uh, mate, can you can you see the can you see the boat? And just gave it a couple of seconds, nothing came back. And I was like, hmm, okay. And I was like, Darren, Darren Luke, Darren Carl, mate, uh, just comms check. Can you can you let us know you can hear me? And all I was expecting back was like, yep, can hear you, or you know, just any indication that they they could hear us. Because we didn't have visibility on them, we couldn't hear them, and we couldn't communicate with them. And as the seconds ticked by and the minutes started to tick by, we cut the engine on the boat and we just sat and waited and thought, if we sit here, they'll physically catch up with us and they'll they'll we'll, we'll see them. And then the minutes started to tick by and we're probably about 15 minutes in now and panic. You know, I'm feeling a huge weight of pressure at this point because we've got a boat missing in the middle of the Irish Sea and a lot of things could happen here. A lot of scenarios could unfold and we can't control them. So we end up turning the, the boat round, going back down our previous line and we go back for about five minutes just thinking that maybe we they've capsized and we'll, and we'll, we'll happen to pick them up and nothing. And we're, we're trying to, the whole time, trying to get in comms with them on the radios, nothing. And we're just really deciding, right, what is the next line of escalation here? What do we do now? Um, Jim's got his thoughts. Chris has got his thoughts and we need to make a decision and just through pure good fortune as we're coming back up to where we cut the engines originally we see a really faint gray kind of like blob of haze coming through and we bomb it over and it's Carl and Luke and we're like you know so relieved they didn't know 
we were trying to get in contact with them. I was like, lads, are you not getting anything I was sending through? And they were like, no. And as far as they were concerned, they thought that they just lost us slightly and they were following us through the mist. They had no idea. But what they'd done, a bit like when you walk in a desert, you've got one dominant foot, they'd veered off left. And we'd only seen them again because they were so disoriented in the mist, they'd done a full loop. And we happened to intersect them at the point where they'd come back on our line. And had that not happened, had they not done a full loop, had they just done a, a kind of a slow veer, they could have ended up, you know, in you know, degrading conditions in the middle of the Irish Sea and God knows what could have happened sort of thing. Um, so there were a couple of days where things were were less than ideal, stressful. By the time we got back to shore, back to a port, there was like a huge sigh of relief. And then there were days where everything went brilliant and we were cruising, families of dolphins swimming alongside the kayaks. And there were moments where there was one day when we were paddling through one of the locks in the northwest of Scotland. And I was like really pushing myself to keep the speed up. And I was just in the zone. I was in the, I was, I was in my element. And as we were paddling, there was just this real lovely realization that nothing in my life had changed. I was still exactly the same person I was the day before my accident to four years, four and a half years later. And I think it was the first time I really, really felt it in my heart. I really kind of, you know, wasn't just telling myself that I was still the same person. I knew I was, I had this real um, warm, like fuzzy feeling. That sounds a little bit kind of cliche, but um, that nothing had changed, that I was still, I'd never lost my sense of identity because I was still the same version of me pushing my limits, doing stuff that was adventurous and being um, outdoors. What a story. It's um, just a, just an incredible, just an incredible sort of feat of, you know, you guys going out and sort of showing that there's no limits to what you can achieve and no matter what happens to you in life, whatever tries to sort of bring you down, you can always sort of rise up and you know, achieve whatever you sort of set your mind to it. You have this sort of very strong, positive mindset and, you know, this sort of growth mindset in a sense. Do you, I imagine you probably had that even before your accident, but uh, even now, is this hugely important to you? Yeah, for sure, for sure. And it's, I think it's something that we're all born with. I think we, we all have this innate ability to be resilient um, but much like any other muscle in our body, you can train it and you train it by failing and you, tra you train it by trying. You don't always have to achieve like the, you know, for me, not achieving my kind of like goal of qualifying for the Paralympics was a failure and it was a huge failure and it was, yeah, it was hard to take at the time, but off the back of it, I learned and I put into action what I'd you know, the momentum I built up over three years into something that would be my greatest achievement. And I think if we're not resilient, our first failure is often our last failure because you then don't put yourself into some of the most resilient people I've met are kids. And it's because kids aren't scared of trying and failing. Kids, you know, as, as, as you're in that kind of phase of your life, you're constantly learning to ride a bike, falling off, learning to ride a bike, falling off a little bit less. And you're, you're constantly doing things for the first time and doing things for the first time often means not being great at them. And then we become an adult and a lot of us 
get into our comfort zone and we know that we can play tennis to a certain level, play football to a certain level. So we stay at that and we, we don't push ourselves out of our, our comfort zone. So I think I was so fortunate that in the build up to my accident, I'd embraced failing and, you know, everybody that rock climbs or mountaineers will will agree that the first time you you try something is not often the time that it succeed you succeed or it you know or it goes as well as possible you have to learn to overcome a particular crux of a move or a particular pitch of a climb or whatever it might be and i just took that same mindset into my injury and kind of you know accepted that i'm going to be doing a lot of things for the first time again now and that is still very much the the mindset I live with. And I'm not, I've learned to not be scared of failure. I've learned to control the, the, the voice of doubt in my own head. I think everybody, probably everybody is their own worst critic. And I don't think you can ever turn that off. I've never been able to turn that voice in the back of my head off. And like I say, day one of the expedition capsizing 10 minutes in, that voice was very much in full force because it was trying to say, told you, you can't do this. Somebody, you know, this hasn't been done by someone like you before because it can't be done. And I've just learned to say cheers, but I disagree. And almost to enjoy proving it wrong and to kind of say, well, I'll tell you what, I'll show you. So I think being resilient has been the biggest asset to me, overcoming a life-changing injury and being able to achieve the things that I'm setting myself out to do. Um, and the thing with the expedition, we didn't even know there was no guarantees we were going to succeed. So we could be having this conversation today, and I could say to you that on day twenty, we we you know we had to cancel it because we we were at our limits and we couldn't achieve it. But I know that because I'm a resilient person and I, I have a resilient mindset, I wouldn't let the failure of the expedition dent any future plans. Yeah. And that's probably led quite nicely to your next expedition that's happening next year or what you're training for at the moment. What are you aiming to achieve from it? So off the back of the back of the kayaking expedition, a couple of doors open and one of which was to do the World Marathon Challenge. So for those of you that don't know, that's to run seven marathons in seven days on seven different continents. So the first one being in Antarctica, and then you bounce day one from Antarctica, day two, South Africa, day three, Perth, Australia, and you bounce from continent to continent, and, and you do seven marathons in seven days. Now, less people have done this than have climbed Everest. I think the number that have done the World Marathon Challenges is like 180. Um, so it's kind of, you know, it's got that... Um, exclusivity which is always kind of you know sounds quite good and importantly for me it's never been done by anybody with um in a wheelchair it's never been done unsupported by anybody with a disability so there's a, a another kind of nice element here of being able to prove what someone with a disability can achieve now i'm not entirely sure how a wheelchair plus snow and ice is going to work in antarctica so i'll let you know could still be stuck there like 20 hours later but I'm pretty sure I'll get myself around the marathon distance. But um, so that will be in, it was originally scheduled for February 2022 because uh, of COVID. It's now been pushed back to November. So I will throw myself wholeheartedly into lots and lots and lots of miles in the wheelchair in the new year. Um, and another one, you know, close to my heart 
which will be earlier in the year, will be in May, will be to to row the English Channel in in memory of my father who died in September this year. Um, he'd struggled with mental health for a good couple of years, and COVID really, really, really impacted him as it did a lot of people. And he he sadly took his own life in September this year. So I kind of wanted to do something that would be in memory of him and could be a way of raising money for the mental health charities that supported him towards the end. So I think trying to, you know, control what I can control and do something positive from what is a negative, um, to be resilient to, you know, the passing of my dad and to do something in his memory. So we're going to be rowing the channel and I've put together a team of, of eight people that have each gone through their own mental health journeys that have lost people, um, as a result of mental health or have gone through that themselves and pulled themselves back from the brink. So we're going to be yeah, in, in May 2022, uh, rowing the channel for, for mental health charities and uh, going for the world record time, of course, which is uh, three hours 51 currently. So we're going to go for three hours 50. That is the joke, but I am semi-serious about it as well. And uh, yeah, that's that's the first thing, and that's that's a real a real personal one for me for next year. It's got a real emotional connection to to the adventure, um, so it's adventure with a real purpose of of you know um, celebrating the life of of my dad, uh, and also helping others to hopefully make sure that people get the help they need and they, and they don't end up in that position because um, yeah, it's it, mental health is is tough. Well, hopefully. Um you know, you can use that drive to get the world record. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, every every stroke will be uh, with a bit more vigor because of that. Yeah, well, I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, as I say, mental health is definitely something which affects. I, I don't know anyone who hasn't known someone or themselves is not affected by it. Um, and it's probably in the last few years with everything that's going on almost become worse and worse. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I think it, you know, for, to use the analogy of filling up a glass of, a glass of water, you know, you've got your third of your cup full because of work stress, a third of your cup full because of financial pressures. And then it's not, doesn't take much more to, to keep adding to that glass before you're overflowing. And if you don't know how to deal with that or you don't have the support network to help you deal with that it can seem quite desperate and for my you know for people like my dad I know that his mental health meant that he saw himself as a um uh I don't know it's still a bit raw to talk about I guess but you know he saw himself as a drain and he saw himself as um almost like a liability because of the way he was feeling um so yeah yeah tricky one to talk about but well i think um it's very exciting about this um these sort of adventures that you're doing and as i say hopefully everyone listening can sort of follow along and support it yeah i mean it's been so such a pleasure listening to your stories and as you say you, you speak so well and so passionately about you know, overcoming adversity in the last sort of five years with everything that's gone on. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a part of the show where we ask the same five questions to each guest each week, um, with the first being on, you know, your trip and adventures. What's the one gadget that you always take with you? GoPro. GoPro? 
Yeah, got to, got to, um, we, we had already one of the 360 ones on the front of the kayak for the expedition. Um, uh, it was good. It was, it was a little bit of a novelty purchase, I guess. But um, yeah, some of the footage that we got, you know, fr- from that, I think. And so much of, I'm so rubbish at self-promotion. I'm so rubbish at social media. But you, you kind of, in the modern world, you have to capture it to prove you've done it and to spread the word. And especially when you're trying to achieve something bigger than yourself. So when you when we were trying to like champion what injury and disability meant in terms of the the limits that you don't have, we had to document the thing to to prove and to kind of like put people up there to to show you know what could be achieved if if you've just had a stroke like Johnny did five years ago or whatever it might be or um, you have some form of life changing injury. So yeah, so um, so, some way of documenting the adventures I think is the answer to that one. Uh, What about your favorite adventure or travel book? And just so before the film came out, I'd read um, Beyond Possible by Nims, 14 Peaks, which is obviously yeah. t- was then turned into 14 Peaks on Netflix. So I read that book when it first came out and was in awe of of that. I know it's a, probably a, a bit of a popular choice at the moment, but uh, that book really inspired me. And I, and I read that before we went on the expedition. So the whole idea of nothing is impossible, I think, stuck in my brain for, for the duration of the expedition. Um, why are adventures important to you? Uh, I think there's so many bits to this, isn't there? I think for me, adventure is like a way of life. And I'm sure you share that and everybody that listens share that. It's just a, a way that we want to live our lives and it's a way of living a fulfilling life. And for me, it's it, it ticks both boxes of physical and emotional um, maintenance and recovery. So for me, I'm still very much going through my physical recovery. I know it's five years after my accident, but... I'm still getting myself to where I want to be. So adventure gives me that and it gives me those emotional and psychological um, ticks in the box that mountaineering and climbing used to do. So I think the biggest tragedy of, of my injury would have been letting it, letting it stop me living an adventurous life that would have been the real trauma. That would have been the real loss. So not losing that has been the most beautiful kind of um, positive from my accident. So adventure is, has been a part of my life for since I was 17 and, and continues to be despite being um, disabled. I'll say that with the old, you know, funny years. But. Yeah, I, I saw the uh, video that you put up um of you walking up the steps the other day which i imagine was a huge win yeah so steps become like your mortal enemy when you're in a wheelchair because there might be two steps into somewhere and you're like cursing yourself but i'll i'll generally throw myself on the, on the floor and get up the stairs if i want to if the reward is worth the effort i'll still do it but um i'm incredibly fortunate enough to have something called a rewalk exoskeleton which is a very futuristic robot that you strap to your body and it comes up to just below my ribs and you can walk again and you learn to walk by moving your body weight and the robot and the exoskeleton reads what you're trying to do. So you have to try and walk. It sounds a bit bizarre to say that when you can't move your legs, but you have to try and imitate the the way that you would shift your body balance and it replicates the movement and walks for you. And it has a stair setting 
which I've not been brave enough to try for about two years because I've just had visions of another fall. Um, I'm kind of done with falling now. But um, <clears throat> I kind of built up the courage to, to give it a go. And yeah, only what, two weeks ago, I was stood at the foot of a staircase in, uh, in the local leisure centre with the physio behind me and started climbing the stairs for the first time in five years. And it wasn't until we were halfway up and then he was like, right, should we turn around and go back down? And I turned around to go back down and oh my God, I had the shock of my life. I was like, the stairs used to look this scary. The stairs always look like this. And um, yeah, going up was fine. So I'm going to, I've made a throwaway comment um, to my partner that's, that's a joke and serious at the same time that in next year, I'd like to see if I can climb the shard in the, in the legs, do the, do the staircase because um, that'd be a, I think that'd be quite a powerful thing and do that for charity as well. Yeah, yet to find out if that's feasible at all, but I'll throw it out there into the universe and hopefully we'll make it happen. I'm sure. Well, I, I will happily join join you in that one if you uh, need some company. <laughs> I'll hold you to that. Uh, what about your favourite quote? Um, so it's by Stephen King and it's, uh, you can, you should, and you will. So can, nice. a motto to live by if, uh, if you ever have an idea. So climbing the shard. You can, you should, and you will. So, it's it's an awful thing to to say though, because just you just get yourself into so many different kind of things. Every time I have an idea and I say that quote in my head, I'm like, oh damn, I've got to do it now. Then <laughs> say yes a bit. Say yes a bit more. Say yes a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, people listening are always keen to travel and go on these grand adventures. What's the one thing you would recommend for people wanting to get started? <laughs> Oh, I think not to be daunted by how, well, not to be afraid of starting with something small. Uh, you know, when you, you, you kind of set yourself a huge challenge, it can, the ultimate goal can look quite scary. So if you're on day one of something and you think I've got 35 days of this, it suddenly becomes a lot more daunting than if you break it down into your smaller segments and you kind of like compartmentalize it a little bit. So for me, you know, my adventures to start with, when I was living my new chapter of life would look so mundane now, like kayaking around a swimming pool was the like epitome of adventure for, for day one of my life post hospital. Whereas if I was to go and do that now, I'd be bored. I'd, I'd, I'd go and do laps around the pool and be like, right, sweet. Should we go and do something else kind of thing? So not to be put off by making a small statement and letting that small statement be what was the expression that the hardest step is often the first is that it yeah it's taking the first step basically yeah it's often the hardest step so not yeah. to be you know and you, you, a lot of people do like these couch to 5ks and stuff don't they and probably the, the scariest part of a couch to 5k for someone that's never run before or hasn't you know um perhaps looked after their physical fitness is is that very first run so if you you know want to be adventurous and live an adventurous life, start small and, and grow from there. Don't try and do something like uh, kayaking from Lansden to John O'Groats before you've kayaked in the local swimming pool is the takeaway there. Yeah. And I imagine for anyone who does the sort of couch to 5K, if you can get past the first one and manage to go for the second run, because even like myself, nothing, nothing worse than when you haven't done anything for a month or two and then go on this run and you're like, almost having a heart attack, almost, you know, <laughs> grabbing every bit of oxygen you can 
And yeah, so it, it is just taking those small steps that make a huge difference. And finally, what are you doing now and how can people find you and follow you when you next go on this big adventure? Yeah, so a um, couple of things, I guess, website, First one, www.darrenedwards.org.uk because .com and .co.uk were taken, sadly. So .org.uk seemed like the next best thing. Um, on Instagram, darrenedwards underscore adventurer. Uh, same on Facebook. And yeah, I will, um, despite being rubbish at social media, attempt to keep all of those up to date as much as possible. Well, we'll put a link of them in the description below so you can follow him and God, it has just been such a pleasure listening to your stories, Darren. And I cannot thank you enough for coming on today. And please, uh, you know, go check them out. And we look forward to uh, following your big adventure in the future. Yeah. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening. You can watch it on YouTube now. And don't forget to subscribe and review the podcast if you're listening on Apple. I hope to see you next week for another fascinating tale of adventure. But till then... Have a great day and happy adventures. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.